Hi everyone, we have a special announcement for you all. We are excited to announce we have partnered with the Retro Kit to bring you an online shop where you can buy all of your favourite classic shirts and get 10% off with the code pitside-rt10. I can't wait to get my hands on a United treble winning shirt from the 99 season. I'm a fan of the Italian kits. I'm going for the AC Milan 93 away kit, but with the 10% off, I might also get the Juventus 99 kit. They've got the long sleeve version too. You can check out the link for the store by visiting our Instagram bio or by visiting theretrokit.com. And remember, get 10% off with the code pitchside-rt10. Now for the latest episode. Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Colazar. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. We are joined this week by another special guest, a visionary in the world of football and the CEO and founder of the biggest football freestyler agency, Global Freestyle. We welcome Danny McGee. Danny will be sharing his perspective on whether football is becoming boring to watch and whether we are losing players with true flair who can produce moments of magic. Talking about flair, how are you, Jack? Yeah, a pair of flares, yeah, maybe. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, Jack, how uh, you enjoyed the games at the weekend? Uh, somewhat. There was a couple of entertaining games, a couple of not-so-entertaining games. Yeah, I think this podcast obviously going to go around a little bit and we'll talk about it, obviously, the... Man United-Liverpool game just being a boring nil-nil draw. Um, it was up and down this weekend. Definitely as a United fan, I'll take that that point against uh, Liverpool and enjoyed watching him cry afterwards as well. But uh, what's your uh, what's your beer of choice this week, Jack? Uh, I've gone with um, 2SP Brewing Company, which I think we've had before on the podcast. This one's called Pony Boy. It's a golden light lager. It's pretty good. I like it. Suit you, that Pony Boy. Yep. I like mm. that. Um, I've gone for a more traditional pint, uh, a pint common to most people in a pub back home, uh, a pint of Fosters. Uh, I don't think you can beat it. A very easy lager just to drink. Um, yeah. Probably yeah. My, it was probably my first beer I had as a probably a sixteen year old back home. Yeah, it was either that or Carlin, usually, right? Yeah, or maybe it, maybe uh, you started off with a WKD. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Australian beer that no Australians ever drink. Fosters. <laughs> Oh, definitely. Um, so, yeah, Jack, obviously last week you asked me the, the trivia question. So now it's my turn to spin it back at you. Um, with Arsenal-Liverpool playing this weekend, I've gone along the idea of that theme. Um, and I feel like this question is gettable, especially for you uh, being a very trivial person. Um, so get ready. <laughs> there have been five players who have played for both Arsenal and Liverpool in the Premier League era. Who are they? Okay. So five players have played for both Arsenal and Liverpool. Both made appearances, not just been in the squad. Both made appearances for both Arsenal and Liverpool. Premier League era only. Premier League era only. Um, And then we'll, uh, yeah, we'll come back at the end and uh, see what you come up with. Yeah, I think think about a half a chance on that one. Yeah, you're you're pretty smart on this area, especially your Premier League knowledge. I'll give you some credit. We'll see. We'll, I don't speak too soon. We'll wait till the end. But uh, no, so it's uh, it's about that time where we introduce, obviously, Danny onto the podcast. Danny, how are you, mate? Very good, thank you. How are you? 
I'm good. It's uh, well, just great to have you on here because I think it's been a while since we've spoken um, and you've been doing some great things. Uh, I've been following you obviously on social media. So no, thanks for coming on. Um, but before we kind of delve into it, as a, as a new guest, Jack's going to hit you five quick so far or not so quick fire questions. Yeah, the five quick or not so quick fire questions. First one, simple name. Danny McGee. Favourite team? Liverpool. Okay. Favourite ever sporting memory? Um, 2005 Champions League final. Liverpool v AC Milan, Istanbul. The one where they came back? That's right. Best game. Yeah, massive good. one. Yeah. yeah. Favourite ever kit? Uh, weirdly, I'm going to... It's funny because at Soccer X last week, I met Bruce Grobelar. My first ever Liverpool kit was the green... Uh, Liverpool with the candy and the, the kind of like flexions on it, like cool pattern. And I, I met him and I told him about it. And uh, so I'd say that green Liverpool goalie top. Iconic. Goalie top. Goalie top. Yeah. yeah, I was a keeper, mate, until I was eight. So nice. Yeah. Um, best player seen live? Best player. Oh, Messi, of course. And then Suarez. So Messi, I saw recently come off the bench for like 20 minutes or into Miami, but Luis Suarez, I saw him, took my sister to her first ever game at Anfield and he scored four against Norwich and it's probably four of the best goals I've ever seen in one game. So I'm going to say Messi, but but like Suarez as well. Yeah, popular answer, Messi. Yeah, most of our guests have gone for Messi. So throwing in there a, a Luis Suarez, um, I personally, being a United fan, hated him, but you have to admire he, and you're going to be seeing him shortly, obviously living down in Florida, and supposedly he's going to Inter Miami. Um, the rumor, yeah. That's so the yeah, rumor. the the new uh, the Inter Miami Galacticos forming an absolute mega squad down there. Um, no, I know. Well, I think that's what it's going to be. Really, it's going to be the Real Madrid of U.S. soccer. And yeah, I mean, I was at Luis Suarez's debut uh, at Anfield. So I came off the bench and scored, and I was at um, the game he scored four against Norwich. Like, you know, I didn't go to loads of games at Anfield, but I was able to catch, I was there at the, some of the right times with Suarez. And yeah, everyone else hated him. I think that's why, you know, people hated him because he was so good, but he was also a bit like the nutcase. So it's nice to, it's nice that he knew whenever you came. So he knew you had to turn it on and make sure he scored some, scored some goals anytime you were in town at Anfield. Anytime well, there you, you go. Like, you know, score some I goals. Swear, I made a few calls. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he pulled it out of the bag. So on that, we got a Man United fan and we got a Liverpool fan. Mm. What do you think of the weekend? Well, I'll, uh, do you want to go first, Jim? In his uh, well, uh, <laughs> yeah. My only thought for me personally, we played poorly. We defended well and we defended for our lives, and that's the only thing I can maybe hang on to as a positive. But I, the best part for me was just seeing how much Liverpool were moaning at the end of the game. Um. Especially Van Dyke. I don't know if you saw the Van Dyke Roy Keane little bit of uh, dialogue between it. Yeah. That was good. But uh, no, I think I thought Liverpool, I thought United probably created the better chances, fewer, but better chances. Um, yeah, you guys were lucky to get a point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my uh, perspective, um, slightly different, but I, that, you know, I watch all the Liverpool games, I make sure I catch every single one. and that was probably the most sloppy Liverpool have been this season. I don't know whether it was the occasion, you know, there was 
7,000 more fans. It was like the new biggest day. I don't know what it was. And obviously, because we beat you 7-0, so we've got to drop that in the year before. And because there was so much hype, and it's always the, always the case. Like, I just knew it was going to be like a dead rubber because, you know, the more people thought Liverpool were going to, like, walk it, I felt like the more media hype that was going into that, like, side of it, the kind of, it was playing into United's favour. It was like, I just felt like, you know, anything they did, like I said, a draw was like, became an amazing result in the context of losing 7-0 the year before. Um, but yeah, you know, at the end of the day, 0-0 in a, the biggest game of our season and we're one point off the top. And uh, we've got, we got Arsenal next week, so we beat them at the top of the league for Christmas and happy days. Do you think you can win the league? Yeah, I actually had a bet. I don't usually bet, but I had a bet for Liverpool to go unbeaten for the whole season, like an invincible season. And um, the only game that's done me so far was the worst VAR performance in history. So in my mind, we still we are technically well, not technically, but we're, you know, in my <laughs> mind, we're still unbeaten. But um, so I don't know who I can take to court if we don't lose again. Yeah, you and Klopp, <laughs> you and Klopp fighting for this rematch at the end of the oh, season. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I do I do think we can win it. I think City, they've got a bit of a hangover from the treble. I think Liverpool did when we when we nearly did the quadruple, we went all the way. Um, I think it's hard to get the same group of players up to do it again. Uh, it's almost you've completed football and how do you motivate yourself? But you know, I think De Bruyne is back this week and I don't know, that looks a bit scary, you know. Yeah, they're in, I think, uh they're overseas doing a friendly game, and I, I saw De Bruyne was on the on the plane going over. So I think I think when they when he comes back, it's going to be a big game changer. But I think for City, losing um, Mares, Gundogan, and the the experience of those players, and like you said, the hangover, I see them. I still wouldn't write them off, but I think you're right in terms of they might just be a little bit off it, but. Man City in the path, right? After January, they just step on it and it just goes. So I think as as some as a person who supports a team that's nowhere near the title, I think it's going to be enjoyable to watch all of these teams battling it out. So it's going yeah. to be good. We'll see. But yeah, City are going to be there. I think it's City or Liverpool. I think Arsenal drop off. Yeah, it's definitely going to be an interesting Villa. run. Villa might be there. I'll be honest. Yep. They look pretty good. Villa are definitely in for a shout, and that would be uh, that would be great to see. Um, but uh, yeah, so Danny, founder, CEO of Global Freestyle, that's where you are now. But I want to take you all the way back to kind of where it all started off. Oh, uh, wow. you really want to know? Oh, yeah, wow. give us give us a quick uh, a quick journey of the life of Danny McGee from from those FA Trophy day. But you know what? Right I can actually mention uh, a guy called Andrew Broadbent in this, but uh, <laughs> sorry, super guest because I know he's there, he's listening every week. So, yeah, I was working for UK League Soccer in New Jersey. I was living in New Brunswick uh, with a few lads there, Christy Irwin and some of the other characters. And, um, you know, I started seeing... I was always a skillful football player. And then um, I started seeing freestyle on the internet. You know, I was like, wow, like this is a bit of me. Went outside on the front lawn uh, of the house, Chucky Towers, it was called, in New Brunswick. And... Um, Gavin Powell, a good friend of mine, not kind of in the room next to me in the house. He filmed me a vid- filmed a video of me doing some of these skills. It was like really a joke, and uh, he was in, into like video editing. And at the time, it was like a you know digital camera. It was none of these like iPhones. 
sound well old uh digital camera and he edited it and put some music on it and at the end he put to me like danny mcgee best freestyler in the world and then it ended in, and it went probably it was like a bit of a take on the colesberg yeah you know, campaign and then it because i posted it on facebook you know it was like early years of facebook in a way and uh people were like oh this is awesome you should do this blah 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 she's like you know and then they just kind of the light switched on and then i was like watching it more on the internet and seeing like different like early pioneers of the sport like you know do stuff and i was just started practicing whilst i was still living in new brunswick yeah we edited uh a video put it online and then um yeah from that point on, i remember having to sit down with Brody, and obviously it was like you were saying you know are you kind of signing for uk league next year and i was like no i'm gonna start my own business called global freestyle and i always remember Brody said you know but you better get a move on because i was like probably 26 or something um and I just remember it. And like I said, I, I had a great time at UK Lee. It taught me loads of stuff. And then I just applied that to my uh, my freestyle business. At the, when it started, it was a coaching company. And then, you know, with digital media, we started putting out content uh, on YouTube and having our own website. And then people started to inquire for my services and all that. And then the first big job we got was uh, someone called me and um, said, oh, we need 10 freestylers for Man United v Chelsea. At half time, Man United, uh, Chelsea half time uh, for Audi, uh, the car company. And at that point, I didn't know any of the freestylers personally. And I just said, they said, oh, you, you know, can you, can you sort it out? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know one more. I was blagged it. So, but what happened then? Because I had something to like offer when I reached out to these like freestylers, or like almost like people I've been watching over the years, like world champions and all that. And, um, yeah, and I've got like the, the 10 best in the UK to like perform at uh, Old Trafford and that kind of kick-started the agency and I shifted the whole business then to like, okay, there's there's something in this we're working with, with the brands. And um, and then, yeah, that year, I think two, the following year, I went out to Dubai. I went to like Venice, performing myself, um, traveled all around Europe and then, you know, I had all these freestyles working on the agency, you know, that year. Um and yeah, I mean, it kind of just took off from there. And then recently, you know, like I said, I worked with Messi for the last uh, few months, a few times. Um, you know, we opened the World Cup in Qatar for Adidas and FIFA. And that was with freestylers from all different, each one was from a different country uh, in the world. So we've done some big stuff. And like I said, we've worked with some of the world's best players. You know, in the last 12 months, we've probably worked with around 30, fortune 500 brands um so it's been a mad journey really from that first video on like the lawn of some yeah sketchy house in the middle of new brunswick and a video that was just a bit of a joke and you know that kind of planted the seed and you know it's just i'm still doing it like probably nearly 15 years later mate that's incredible that's that's an incredible journey of just how you've built it up and you've obviously got that inner drive, that business mindset, but then also the football mindset that is kind of dueled together. Um, for those similar to Jack who might not understand what freestyle is, to kind of give like a, a rough um, take on what freestyle is, because obviously a lot of our listeners will be obviously common with the usual game, but I feel like freestyle is such a unique part of the game that has so many benefits. So, what would you kind of describe freestyle as? Well, yeah, I mean, to like kind of backtrack, like global freestyle, the agency. So we we kind of 
to be you know specific about the genres that we're involved with. So we are we represent like freestyle football players and also what you would call street players, street soccer players, and they're both both of those athletes that we kind of both of those genres of athletes that we represent um, are they're like influencers. They, you know, they have millions and millions of followers. Um, so a freestyler is someone that you know performs skills, expresses themselves with the ball unopposed. So they're not doing the skills on a defender or anything like that. Whereas a street player, um, you know, there's someone who who uses skills on an opponent, whether that's a nutmeg or some form of, you know, elastico or an ake, they call it, uh, to go around a player. So, you know, the streets, the street style stuff is more um, applicable to the game. Whereas freestyle, you know, it's evolved a lot from when I've, I've been involved with it. Essentially, it was just people juggling the ball and doing different skills but now it's very acrobatic and break dancing's involved and you know it's very abstract from the game but a lot of the skills yeah i mean the kind of pioneer of freestyle to a degree is ronaldinho because of the nike commercials he, he he did you know the yoga benito ones and it was him messing around with the ball in those commercials and then the boom of youtube where people were able to like share skills and then people combine those skills and then it just it was became the sport evolved very quickly um because of the internet you know it was back in the day like something like skateboarding was a group of people in california no one knew about and it kind of grew out from there and it was like all in california and it kind of spread out whereas freestyle football was instantly global fast um you know and like i said some of these people early on were doing things that i just you would just never thought was possible with the ball. Whereas now it's like everyone's seen it hundreds of thousands of times. It's like kind of people, it's not as impressive, I guess. But at the time, it was like when I first saw it, I was like, I, di I didn't think it was real. Like, I just didn't think it was real. Um, and obviously now I can do all the skills, so clearly this. <laughs> but uh, going back to like those night commercials, like that was how like I was kind of introduced to this different part of the game and you mentioned there obviously Ronaldinho but those night commercials are forever going to be etched in my memory like they, they were so good and it almost the one that they're on the shipping container with Eric Cantona and they're in that cage is like that blend right between the freestyle game but then also the street soccer and in those cages like I look at those cages and you can almost resemble yourself as a kid like growing up we would go to your local cages or you'd go to like in your street and playing kirby and stuff like that do you think it's a case of potentially at the moment kids are especially in the u.s are going to turf fields rather than cages and small small areas to play so do you think there's a there's a need out there for the street soccer style oh yeah 100 i mean um you know Global street soccer was kind of formed as a new brand of mine um, to kind of initially like to address some of the problems that exist in U.S. soccer because you know I mean the women's game in in the U.S. especially the national teams as over the last few decades it hasn't really been the the best barometer of measuring you know results of culture versus other countries and how they produce players because. You know, it was kind of one of the only countries that had a professional women's league for so long. Whereas now, you know, the rest of Europe have caught up and you're seeing the same deficiencies in the women's game as you are, has been in the US men's game. But one of the problems is 
is you know one to a degree the pay to play model and a lot of these kids that are playing street soccer and stuff like that might not get access to playing a, a travel team or you know they can't afford to play on a travel team or access the kind of game in a kind of professional type of way um but you know when you look across like the world's game and you, you know i find it strange sometimes because in any other industry, you know, whether it's science or anything like that, you look at the, the greats that have, and you kind of learn from them and like Einstein and all these people, I don't know, Elon Musk or whatever. But in soccer, if you look at like the 10 best players of all time, give or take one or two, I don't know, whether it's Maradona, Pele, Messi, uh, Johan Cruyff, uh, uh, George Best, they've all got, they've all, they all at some point have acknowledged that it was the streets where they learned the game. And one of my favorite quotes is Johan Cruyff said that, you know, if I played 20 hours a week in the academy, you know, 20 hours a week in the street, sorry, and four hours a week in the academy, where do you feel I learned the game? Um, you know, and Z Zinedine Zidane said, I owe everything I've achieved in football to playing football in the streets, my friends. And I could go on. Yeah, Messi said recently, they, they asked him, what, what do you think about when you play football? And he just said, I'll just play like a child in the street. And it's, you know, and, it, you know, it's, it's obviously a big, Thing that's been spoken about over the year in years in US soccer. It's not like it's like new, uh, like people are aware of it, I think. And I feel it is being addressed. I think the U US Soccer Federation are open a lot of mini fields, you know, between now and the 2026 World Cup. Um, so my concept was always about, you know, rather than now, because it's not like you can let kids just play freely in the streets with like the insecurity in the streets, but how can you bring a street philosophy? into coaching you know even like you watch man united even his their youth team strategy you know you read about ferguson and paul mcginnis i think a lot of people at uk have got relations with, with him but you know they talk about how they try to replicate the streets of scotland i mean because scotland at one point was a really big conveyor belt of players and that was based around kids playing in the streets um you know, Ruben Young kind of from Ajax, when Ajax went far in the Champions League recently, he said, we at youth level, we used to take them to like a street court where there's no slide tackles and just let them play. Um, you know, and that's why I think, you know, when you watch the US men's national team play and you watch Brazil play, it's like two different things because Brazil are playing in a flow state where they're not really thinking about anything and they can play, in, it looks like poetry in motion. We watch the US men's national team, no disrespect, it, it's very rigid. It's very structured. You can almost predict what they're going to do. Um, and I think, you know, anyone can set up a team in a structured way. You know, look at someone like Roy Hodgson and get it robust. But it's those little moments of magic that ultimately win you the game more often. And that's why Brazil, countries like Brazil, they're the most successful nation of, and probably produced more great players in the world than any other countries. It kind of almost sounds like you're saying perhaps in years gone by, there was an environment that, whether wanting it to or not, created these players, whether it's playing in the favelas, playing in the street, wherever it may be, that, that made players hone their skills in that way. And then because of positive changes, maybe those environments don't exist as much because of better facilities or people moving out of poverty or wherever it may be. But now we almost have to recreate those environments again just to get the benefits out of them, you know, recreate them in a, in a safer and in a better way, hopefully, but so we can extract those benefits that those environments did give players as well. So 
I mean, I guess my question is one: how how do you recreate that environment um, and get to get those benefits that that happened in in former years? And then also, if those players now are developing those attributes from those environments in in modern times, now those players are then taken into an academy or an elite level uh, youth setup. How do coaches kind of harness and develop and encourage that rather than almost coach that out of the player? Well, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, one of the things, you know, especially when I grew up, so when I refer to street soccer, I always refer to it as like any time you get to play without a coach there. And that could be at lunchtime at school on the school playground. It's not necessarily, you know, it's called street, but, you know, it's not necessarily in the streets. But, I, you know, for me growing up, it was like break time at school, we played a game. Lunchtime at school, we played a game. I'm sure it was the same for you guys. After school, playing for some sort of team locally, you know, I was fortunate, I guess, to play for an academy and then go to different type. The school team was always a loose kind of experience, you know, less pressure. Um, so I think ultimately, like, that's the word there. Like, how can you take the pressure off the kids? Like, uh, in training, you know, if they're training three times a week, me personally, if I, you know, I'd try and give as much freedom to the players as possible, uh, you know, if they're under 10s and stuff, the ultimate, you know, you can teach tactics and formations in the game. Uh, I think there's no better teaching than the game itself to a degree. Um, you know, because I think a lot of coaches can get it wrong and the coach, the coach, they kind of, the game has became more about the coach's ego than it has about the players. And it's like the coach wants to win the game on the weekend. So that kind of forces what they do in the week and blah, blah, blah. You know, and I have a lot of kids that I've coached over the years that say, oh, I don't really like soccer or whatever. And, you know, and then I ask them like, what their experience was. And I feel like almost they haven't had the opportunity to play it. And when I say like play it, just like on you go, like have fun. Um, and that's what I think me growing up, like, the, you know, I'd say 60, 70% of my time playing soccer was done without a coach there. And then maybe a few times a week you go to like a structured coaching session so that you get that ban. I think society's changed a lot. Kids aren't as active as all these digital diversions like computer games and iPads and all this sort of stuff. They're less stimulated by just going out and having having a game or something. Um, and that's where the problem lies and also the insecurity in the stress. There's a lot of factors. But I think, you know, if I had a team now, a young, young team, I'd definitely focus on freedom, self-expression, try making mistakes, you know, making mistakes is good. Um, to try and almost augment or in, kind of replicate the streets or amplify their kind of positive way of playing in the streets, you know, no pressure. Um, but what, you know, just to add lib from that, but, you know, Christian Pulisic, I, I was fortunate, fortunate to work with him before the World Cup for Puma. Um, you know, really nice guy. But one of the interesting things was he just recently built two street football pitches in Hershey, PA, where he's from. In the whole like, press release was, you know, we want, he said he want to give kids the opportunity to play without a coach like I did. Because, yes, he moved to Europe when he was like 15, 16 to Dortmund. But actually, when he was like 11 or 12, he spent a couple of years in England. And there's an article in The Guardian, and he talks about how he was able to play street football at lunchtime every day 
So when he came back to the US, uh, his family moved back to the US after those years, years of exposure in the UK. He was trying to find pickup soccer everywhere. His dad was setting up tournaments so they could play more often and all this sort of stuff. And he goes on to say he was almost, you know, almost the US's best player currently, you know, he would say. He said that, you know, he's almost, uh, his development was in spite of the US coach system rather than because of it, because he had that exposure to a different culture. Um, so, I, you know, I think there is a progression towards it. Um, I think if the US do well at the World Cup, it leaves a bit of a legacy, hopefully inspires people to go out there and play. Because um, I, think, I think that's the, one of the things people forget about street football. The first thing, is inspiration. So I remember playing on the playground and recreating, I don't know, Robbie Fowler's goal at the weekend or whatever. And I think sometimes in the US, a lot of them don't watch the game. So they they lack the inspiration. Um, you know, so that's how I see football. It's like watching your favourite players going out and then trying to kind of reenact them. I think that's ultimately the kind of one of the, especially young players, the best way of developing. But I did. I did go on a long time there, Brody. If you're listening, mate, I apologise. <laughs> no, but I think you you've hit on some key points there, and I think just kind of sum up what you said there. It's about the the environment that these players are within, and I think the environment that we were within as kids was you would see something on TV or when the YouTube like was coming around and you would you would find it then you'd be in your back garden or you'd be with your mates at the local park trying it out like I remember <clears throat> for the poor player I was trying to replicate David Beckham free kick against Greece for example and like you remember like trying to arc your body like David Beckham whereas now our kids actually replicating what they see on the TV so I think when it comes to that street soccer, yes, you hit the nail on the nail on the head. We said it doesn't have to be within a street. It's that unorganized play. You don't want the kids to always have organization. Um, I think there's so many benefits to having players play without any type of structure, and that's where they start learning. So I'm not sure if you could talk maybe more on what you found to be the benefits of players playing without structure. Yeah, one one quote I read recently, which was kind of, I guess, on this topic, um, you know, and this player's kind of been a little bit, you know, controversial, you know, people, people see him as a bit of a controversial player because of the way he plays the game. But like being a Liverpool fan, like Trent Alexander-Arnold, like he's a right back and he's almost like reinvented the role. Um, and he's very, you watch him speak and he's this really intelligent player. I mean, really, really bright young man. And he said, um, you know, people get caught up playing the position, but I'll try and play the game. And I just was like, wow, that's really quite profound, really, because I think that's where a lot of players go wrong. They say, right, oh, I'm a right D or I'm a let, you know, and they get stuck in this position. There's an opportunity to go forward, maybe on the overlap or even like what you call like an underlap or go inside or kind of break the lines or, you know, and I think that's what Alexander Arnold does. Sometimes you'll see him like, you know, in a number 10 role at some point in the game, um, you know, and I, Ultimately, he grew up playing on the streets of Liverpool. He modelled his game on Stevie G. He, he hits the ball just like him. I always say that, you know, there's no... I just feel like there'd be no... Lionel Messi wouldn't be the same player without Maradona, you know. And I just feel like it's the emulation of the great players, like you said, um, that is the kind of 
template and then you kind of add your own styling from there like you, you you're out there in the garden of hitting the ball like that you beckon but if you're in a coaching session you've got a coach down he's addressing every time you do it wrong you know all of a sudden you're under pressure you don't do what you you know you don't figure it out for yourself so the learning process is completely different um you know street football is all about just keep making the mistakes until you get it right basically and you know without that pressure so you know and a lot i see a lot of kids you know in a different environment they give up they don't want to do it they don't want the ball anymore and you know so i think oh no i just <laughs> one thing you said there about like the pressure obviously when when a kid who is in a coaching environment is makes a mistake, there's the pressure of looking over your shoulder, right? Is a coach going to flag me up? But I think we almost had the pressure on ourselves when we would play with, say, older kids. Like there was times I remember as a kid playing with somebody who might be two, three, four years older than me. And that's the pressure that we put on ourselves. But now it seems like there's so much pressure on players to have to do it within repetition within a coach and practice. So no, go, just going back to the question, it was kind of what do you see as like the benefits of players playing without structure? Yeah, well, ultimately, you know, I think if you took two different players, two say you had twins, right? You had the same DNA, same players. One player structured football and was just played in games and told where to run and told where to kick it, told where to move and everything. And then the other player just played in the streets, played in the streets. You'd have completely different players. Uh, whereas one has kind of developed the the way of problem solving, improvisation, thinking for themselves. And the game's so fast, like ultimately it's those skills. Improvisation is thinking, you know, the meaning of it is thinking creatively at high speed. So I, I just see it as like, if you can get the balance right, it's not saying, oh, you know, structured coaching is wrong. It's just, it's like a diet. You've got to have balance. You've got to have both. If you're, you know, I just feel like the type of player that's currently being produced, especially in the US men's soccer, you know, and they're, they're, they're probably having the same conversations and developing it in the way to try and address this. They're not stupid people, obviously. They're trying to address it. You know, I think England have done a great job. You, you know, they they changed the size of their field, you know, the FA, right? And I feel like if you look at England, now the type of player, there's that many creative players in England now, where it's Grealish, even like players like Foden, Jaden Sancho, Harvey Elliott. They're almost, you can see they're behind, they're always good in the tight spaces. So I feel like, you know, ultimately the type of player that's produced um, that makes the difference. I feel at the highest level, um, you know, is. Is that's what the benefit of street soccer is? Is the the type of players that that kind of come through? Yeah, and interestingly, we've probably spent a lot of time looking back to kind of yesteryear with a golden eye and appreciating kind of things of the past and players of the past and how they inspired the future players. Um, I don't know if you saw a recent interview with Michael Owen, who who kind of gave his opinion of. I'm kind of saying compared to yesteryear, compared to the kind of technicians of say someone like a Matt Letizia, nowadays if you can if you can run for a long time and you're fast and you can basically pass a ball from A to B, you get a career in the Premier League compared to when he played, you had to have a bit more skill, a bit more creativity to, to kind of make it. So I guess uh, what I'm asking you is your opinion on that. Is Is that true? And also kind of to that point, has modern football become a little bit boring compared to maybe football of previous decades? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, to be honest. Um, 
I think so. I think it's definitely evolved and changed. Um, you know, even the, the pitches are so flat, so it kind of lends itself to this like high speed passing football. Um, I feel like anytime there's a team that's like really successful, like a lot of it's so influential on other way other coaches play and right down to our level as youth coaches, you know, Pep Guardiola, for example, you know, everyone interchanging, passing short passes, quick, you know, kind of taking that, you know, the 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 dark arts of the dribbling out of the game a little bit. Uh, but interestingly, you know, Pep Guardiola's book, one of the excerpts from that is that, you know, one of the first things he looks for in the play, even if, if it's a goalkeeper, can they dribble? Can they, you know, are they good in tight spaces with the ball at the feet, even like their goalkeeper and their centre centre backs? Um, you know, and the city teams that you know, Mares, for example, I see him as like a dribbler. You know, he's still playing, and you know, even Grealish to a degree. Um, I think, and I think nostalgia plays a part because you know the way it works now is like we've got this game now and then the clips that we see the old players are on like say youtube or it's like a condensed like montage of their skills so you almost get you know you know you you're kind of perceptions shifted of the past because you watch the clips of ronaldinho and think oh he was awesome like he did that all the time and every, every time he got the ball he just like nutmeg someone um and then then you watch the live game and it's like you only see little flashes so i think I think it's still there, and I feel like I'd say yes. I think the game's definitely changed, and there's kind of less of those individual, or there is individuals, but I just feel like they're not allowed as much to just right. take the ball. Um, it's become more of a team approach, but uh, I do think it's kind of magnified because of the way you know digital media works, and we see all these like montages of the old players and. I yeah. think, you know, for me, watching Zidane when I was 10 years old had more of an impact on me, probably if I'd have watched Zidane when I was, like, 40 years old. Because, you know, I just feel like as a kid, it's just, like, it's all magical. So, I don't know. I think those things, but I do agree. I definitely think it's changed. But I think it goes through cycles, and I feel like there'll be a team that'll have two wingers that just run it, you know, run at defenders again, and then that'll be, like, an approach that's successful. And I just hope it comes back. In the end of the day, Messi, he's still playing. Uh, I know he's become more of a kind of passer now, let's say, or let he dribbles less. But, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago where the magic was still there, if you know what I mean. I just feel like, I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd feel like, you know, now Messi and Ronaldo are out of the media as much. With, you know, they're not at their peak. It's almost like, well, who's next? Then it's like, okay, Haaland and Mbappe. Right, just not no, I, the same I, level. I I agree with everything you're saying there. I think, like you say, when you look at the past players, you are looking at their top one percent of individual skills. When you're looking at the highlights and things like that, so that definitely skews opinion. I I think the individuals are there that still have the same skills and creativity and willingness to do it. But I agree with your point of almost are they restricted what they're allowed to do because they have a strict a, a structure or a system that they then have to play in. I think a good example of that is someone who you mentioned there, Jack Grealish, who went from someone at Aston Villa who loved to dribble people on, dribble at people. He was the most fouled player in the league. He picked the ball up off his centre-back 20 yards from his own goal and go for a dribble. Compared to now, it's not he's lost those skills, but he's now playing in a structure that that's not his orders. That's not what he's asked to do. Um, so some, sometimes I don't think it's necessarily the individual, but the structure that they're 
then asked to play in. And maybe that lack of allowing them the freedom to do those things is why, in some people's mind, kind of modern football is becoming a little bit more boring, might not be the right word, but predictable and rigid. Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, luckily, uh, you know, Liverpool's brand of football now is completely different to City's. I feel like, you know, Manchester City have a lot to do with how some of the other teams might play, you know, especially someone like Brighton and, you know, even even the uh, even Tottenham now, I feel like there's a blueprint there that gets followed because it's successful. But um, I just like the fact in the Premier League right now, there's almost like a contrast to styles where you look at Liverpool, I feel like Salah's still an individual, a bit of a dribbler, and you've got, you know, Luis Diaz on the, on the other side. He's almost a bit of an old-fashioned winger. Um, I just feel like there's a bit more license, freedom in the Liverpool team when they attack um, to a degree. But yeah, City, have just, like, I think the reason why it gets replicated is that they're just so consistent. Um, yeah, consistent, so consistent and, and successful too. Yeah, yeah and consistent so- and successful. But I agree with you. I think Liverpool are probably the most entertaining team in the league to watch now, and maybe because of the freedom some of their attacking players have. Yeah, it's a bit of a throw, throwback. And, uh, you know, for the sake of football, I know Stu's probably there, toe curling, thinking. So to save football, Liverpool need to win the league. That's what we're all saying, right, lads? Exactly. Well, maybe not Liverpool, but somebody except City needs to win it. But, like, to I think your point there of, like, your Luis Diaz and your Salas, I, I rate both of them very highly, especially Salah. And you look at what he possesses in terms of skills. He has the, the flair of trying to beat players, but he has the flair with the addition of a a high IQ. He's a very intelligent player. Whereas I look at somebody like a Marcus Rashford, who I think has the skills, has the pace, but maybe lacks that IQ. And maybe something you could even throw in like an Mbappe, Mbappe's raw speed. But then like you go back to your Ronaldinho's, your Eden Hazards, they could do both, right? They had the, the speed, they had the skills, but they also had the intelligence. And I think that intelligence comes from going back to that street soccer environment of learning to deal with tight spaces. No, I agree, yeah. I mean, Rashford, for example, like last year, we had an amazing season and I was like, I'm a huge fan of him really just because he seems like a really good guy off the field, what he's done for charity and all that sort of stuff. But I feel like this year, I don't know, there seems to be a lot of stuff going on off the field and I think a lot of these players that are mega consistent as well. I think, uh, especially someone like Salah, they're like, you know, the most, he's a world-class athlete. He's one of the, you know, all the Liverpool players, like say he's the first one in, he's doing weights two hours, two hours before the sessions and he's the most dedicated professional you could, you could meet. But, you know, as per the English typical uh, kind of tainted athletes that we get, you know, they tend to have a lot of these celebrity type issues off the field ultimately stops them from being as consistent but but no I agree I mean um but yeah I think there's still players like it's sad because people like Neymar have gone and gone to the Saudi league and you know as much as people will knock him about certain things he's someone who is you know refuses to let his imagination die you know when he plays football and I just feel like the more players that kind of like that that can be effective in the game. They're kind of he's an entertainer. I see it as really more than a player. Yeah, and I think you touch on a good point in terms of like the English media and the bandwagon. There, you look at somebody like an Anthony, who's the Brazilian player at United. 
last season doing the like the pivot on the halfway line. Yeah. Didn't get anywhere because of it, but that's his flair coming out of it. But yet straight away the papers the next morning is why is he doing that? And we're the media now, and to your point earlier where you said about this, the little clips that you see now, these players are probably playing under so much pressure, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, I would say, like, you know, pressure reposes creativity, right? So it's like, how can create creative players, you know, really express themselves if they're under so much pressure? And you're right, the media, you know, I see this in Man United, you know, it happened to Liverpool in the, the 80s and 90s, all the pundits on match of the day were like former Liverpool players every time there was a bad result. And now it's like you've got Roy Keane or Gary Neville. You know, as soon as Man United lose or there's a mistake, you know, they, every defeat, every mistake is compounded by their own pundits. So it amplifies, it makes it even worse. It makes it 10 times when you've got Roy Keane saying, ah, they're all rubbish. How can you then go out and get the ball and like, you know, in a tight situation, like try and take a risk if like you've just been battered all week by your own, almost your own fans, your own kind of, so it is a tough uh, thing, but I think ultimately the coach and the internal environment, you know, you know, someone like Pep or someone like uh, even Eric Ten Hag or whatever, you know, I think the players are kind of strong-willed enough. And I think Anthony has got a lot of potential, but yeah, I think he's still a bit raw. He, he's got to know when to do it and when not, I think. He's not as effective as some of the other dribblers and tricksters, I, I don't think, at the moment, but. No, so I think I think in terms of the question of like whether the game is getting boring or it's getting maybe more mandated, I think it's a case of it's not the players that are lacking of the flair. The flair is there, and I think you see it when you see like the social clips in training and off the field. But if do you think it's a case of the managers that are coming in, whether it's a youth level or at the top level, are so geared obviously towards the results rather than the the progress? And I'll take my hat off to Jurgen Klopp. Obviously, when he come in. He came in with that style that, to this day, everyone has loved his style, and we spoke about it in terms of letting the players have freedom, whereas you compare it to, you mentioned Roy Hodgson, right, how rigid he might be or how maybe that mid-level team might be so rigid in their, their system. Um, and even Louis van Gaal, years ago, when he signed uh, Di Maria, Di Maria came in as a world superstar, but under van Gaal, no, when you get the ball, you have to do X, Y, and Z. You can't go outside of the box. So do you think it's a case of, in this modern world, it's the more so the manager rather than the players? Yeah, I mean, you guys touched on it, that it's the kind of Oliver structure and there's a system that needs to be put first before any individual. And, you know, the stakes are so high now, um, it seems, with so much money involved. I just feel like that ultimately trickles down. Like, you know, the more money involved, the more pressure on the, the board, more pressure on the manager, more pressure on the players. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's both. I think it's both. Um, but, yeah, I just hope uh, that there's some sort of, like, financial fair play cap for all teams and ultimately football kind of is, you know, the the type of football that we all want to see is kind of, saved really um because i think you're right i feel like there's a lot of the the magic's gone but again i might be uh just getting old <laughs> aren't we all but i think so going back to obviously when you said right at the start when you're a player you're a skillful player um do you think as well there's a huge there's obviously a huge difference between the training ground and obviously the 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 game day experience 
and this this could touch on again the the youth level and the the pro level but there's such a difference right in terms of the pressures that come on the training ground and then on game days you're in the crowd you're in the environment so i think it going back to the covid days where players were playing without any fans there it was almost was that maybe a case of i can let go a little bit here i can be a little bit more creative was that maybe the best the best football we've seen in a while so I don't know from your experience. Do you see a di- a, a big difference between the training ground and the game day? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think there is. You know, obviously, I think when your team's kind of flying and you know it's easier. I think you know if you're in a position in the league where you, you're fighting for relegation and things like that, it's obviously harder to take those risks. But you know, look at say something like Arsenal now and. I feel like there's a bit of freedom there with their wide players, Saka and Martinelli and stuff. So, you know, I think at different points in the season, it can be a lot harder, especially if the fans get on your back. I mean, if you look at, you know, Man United right now, it's just like, you know, it's almost like a cascade of problems. Like the media get on your back, your own fans get on your back, your own coaches, like, you know, they're border on your back. And all of a sudden, it's just like mounting and mounting and mounting. And then, you know, it's like you saw the game the weekend. It's like, even I felt a bit sad for Man and no disrespect, but for Man United to sort of play the way they did. I mean, I don't know what they were doing when they were doing the goal kicks and stuff. I was like, it, I mean, I know they kind of pulled it off, but I felt like they were so close to really making a mistake with the goalie. They were so scared. Yeah, it was so, you know, I think the scars are quite deep from what happened with before, but, you know, the players are clearly under pressure. But I think Ten Hag has done a great job, and I think you'll turn the corner ultimately this season because... Um, he's stubborn in his ways. I think that's a good sign. Oh, definitely. I, I think this is it's definitely been insightful learning more about obviously the street soccer and how it can definitely take play a huge part in the development of players. And we have we have a fair few in the audience that listen to this that are youth coaches. Is there any maybe advice you could give to youth coaches to help bring out this this street style of play within individuals and within the team? Well, yeah, I mean, um, for me, you know, I don't know, it depends on how many sessions you got per week or whatever, but, you know, so say that for argument's sake, you've got three set coaching sessions that week, you know, in my opinion, one of those sessions needs to be ultimately small, you know, small-sided free play, get some music on. Every time someone tries something, whether they fall over or make them reinforce that with good job or good effort and, um, just really, really, really trying to uh praise what people are trying to do because you know, as soon as you say something like unlucky or you're like, you know, ah, or like you know, the body language of the player, you know, making a mistake and then like having the coach compound that mistake with maybe critique or telling them what to do straight away. Um, I think at least one day a week. Let them do what they want. Because every time you ask a player when they turn up for co- coaching or training, you ask them, what what, what, what do you want to do today? Like, pretty much they all say, oh, can we play? Um, and obviously the coach will say, well, well, we're doing what I want to do. And then what you can play at the end for five minutes. So I think, yeah, just dedicate some time to actually just not really coach at all and just create the environment. Like I said, I use music, um, you know, make it as fun as possible. And uh, yeah, that's it, really. 
Yeah, and I think I think it was Paul McGuinness said when I was at one of his clinics about how United would have um, days in the academy where they would play in the cages, and it would just be like you said there, just go and play. So I think like for me, like kind of taking snippets from what you've said is. As coaches, we have to allow the players to play because that is where they're going to learn the game. We can't be micromanagers. We have to just let them enjoy it. And nine times out of ten, when a player leaves the sport, it's because they're not enjoying it anymore. And what the kids enjoy more than anything is playing the game, right? Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, there's a lot of coaches out there that are kind of, you know, ultimately, you can throw a ball in a cage with three on three, and just let the kids play, and, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to have a really good time. It's going to end, and they're going to want to carry on, or they're going to want to come back next week, and they just, they've just they had a great experience. But a coach can a coach can spoil that environment by stopping it too many times, and blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, when you look at the data of how many players make it professional, it's like 0.001 or something like, you know, it's hard to make it to the top end, and... Um, you know, I think you just need to treat players and treat, let the players play, you know, and, um, and yeah, cage football. I mean, just to weigh in on that, I mean, that's the, for me, the optimal environment, you know, the ball not going out of play, continuous play. There's some interesting data, like, you know, to say, like, you know, I don't know what it is, but like the kids are getting like far, far more many touches because the ball's staying in play. And if you, you take that over a year, just say they're getting, 30% more touches than just playing on a field where the ball does go out play the same size. When you add that up, say if they're having 30% more touches on the ball, if you add that up to every single session over the year, then all of a sudden, you know, you've almost played, you've almost played soccer an extra like three months. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, you know, it makes perfect sense when you look at the, the numbers. So that type of environment, I think, you know, that's why Pulisic wanted to build those like cages in Hershey PA. For me, that's, you know, you probably have experience like working out of power league or goals. There's something about yeah. like kicking onto a field, knowing the ball's not going out. It almost like changes how you feel. It's like, oh, you almost feel excited as a like, player. Um, so anything you can do to create that optimal environment and step out of the way, I think is beneficial, um, hugely beneficial to the players. Amazing. Oh, I think that's uh, the perfect way to kind of wrap this up with the advice. So, no, Danny, really appreciate you coming on. This is, for me as well, this has been very insightful learning about the different perspective on the game um, from a, a freestyle and a, a street soccer background. So, no, Danny, really appreciate you coming on. No, I appreciate it. It's just been awesome. I, you know, I wish you all the best with the with the podcast. And, uh, you know, I've had some great insight from you guys. And, you know, good luck. It's going to be awesome. Thank you very much. And before you go, I might need to, uh, Jack might need a little bit of your help as we uh, we finish off with our trivia question. Oh, okay. Um, so, Jack, five players that have played for Arsenal and Liverpool in the Premier League era. How many you got? I think I've, well, four definites and one probable. I think this is probably one of the easiest questions we've had so far. I'm having to be overconfidence, but, I'm, but I feel like they're all pretty modern players, right? So I noticed them down. All right, um, go on, him. So I've got some definites. Colatore. Correct. Oxley Chamberlain. Correct. Uh, Jermaine Pennant. Correct. And I'm pretty sure Yossi Benayoun. Correct. Okay, yeah. And then my, my one that I'm... I, you know, like, normally you can kind of picture that player in the kit. 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that I'm for some reason I'm sure this guy played for Liverpool, but I just can't picture him in the kit. And that was an Elka, Nicholas and Elka. That is correct. Five out of five. Well done, mate. Oh yeah. Yeah, well. that was one of the easier ones. You let me have that one. Let me have an easy week. Well, yeah, I'm just trying to trying to get the hint into you that like you keep absolutely belting me with hard questions. Like, <laughs> t- take it a little bit easy. Um, no but, one's uh, keeping score. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe in the new year we'll have to turn it into a leaderboard and get a little bit more competitive. Um, but Jack, I don't know if you've got any last closing comments. No, I think that was great. Uh, obviously, a great story going from uh, you know the front lawn in New Brunswick all the way to opening up the World Cup uh, with your freestyle. That's pretty awesome, and also some good insights on um, how coaches can affect the players' environment and their learning too. So, yeah, very insightful. And there's a lot of coaches that listen um, into this podcast, so hopefully they can take something away from this too. Brilliant. No, also, okay. it's good. It's good to hear that. Basically, USA have England to thank for Pulisic's ability. Well, so yeah, yeah. You welcome, don't America. Don't quote me, but yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Danny, thank you very much. Uh, and we hope, uh, we hope you all have a good weekend. Take care, everyone.